0: You know, we're, we're in Romans 13 this morning, and um, sometimes we get so close to the bark and the leaves and the twigs that we lose sight of the forest, and we fail to see the, the picture and the connection. And Romans 13 is one of those passages that we could certainly dive into the, to the branches and the leaves and spend a lot of time on each verse. Um, but I think we would lose something of the whole if we did that. And I want to remind you this morning of where it occurs in the midst of Paul's exposition, because I, I really could title this last section of Romans, The Spirit-Filled Life. Because he starts out in chapter 12 saying, you know, give yourselves to God lock, stock, and barrel, no holds barred. Turn yourself over as a living sacrifice. Uh, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to the world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And and that is nothing more or less than than being sold out to God and filled with His Spirit. And then He tells us what this Spirit-filled life looks like. He tells us that it changes our self-image. He tells us that God has given us gifts that we're to share with each other in the body, in the family. He tells us how we're to minister to one another. He tells us that there are certain activities that should be a part of the natural outflow of our lives because we're filled with the Spirit. And he tells us there are certain ways that we should react if the Holy Spirit is really in charge. And when he comes to that last section of Romans 12 where he's talking about reaction, he's particularly talking about people that kind of bang you around and bump into you and persecute you and give you difficulty. And we're not so naive to think that they're only out there in the world. (laughs) You know? We hurt each other in the church, too. And we sometimes persecute one another. We sometimes afflict each other. And so clearly those verses at the end of chapter 12 are somewhat transitional because those kinds of reactions ought to, you know, there should be that spiritual reaction that occurs whether you're dealing with people in the church or people outside the church. Then he moves to our relationship as spirit-filled people completely outside the church, in the culture, in the government, in the society in which we live entirely. And that's what Romans 13 is all about. What does a spirit-filled life look like in the world? Not just in the church, but in the world. And then when we get to chapter 14, he's going to kind of come back around and talk to us about some of our attitudes, and uh, we're probably going to get there next week. And, and if you, if you uh, love to talk about peripheral issues, we're going to dive right into some that have divided the church and Christians for years. We're going to talk about Sabbath days and drinking and gambling and smoking and, well, that's not in there, but we're, we're just going to get into all of that stuff. I mean, we're just going to dive right into all that uh, legalism and libertinism and all that stuff's coming up. But in the midst of it, what does a spiritual life look like in the world? paul 's writing to a church that is in the aftermath of an interesting time um because and, and i've been drawing mental blanks all morning, and i can't remember the name of the emperor Claudius I believe that's who it was in in a d fifty four he issued an edict and threw all the Christians out of Rome but uh he got knocked off um probably by his wife and uh she wanted her son Nero to become the emperor, and so um, Nero has come to the throne. It's an interesting time because Nero was 16 years old when he became Caesar, and he was young enough that he was still under the tutelage of certain um, of the uh, of the Roman Senate and and even Seneca, the philosopher of Rome was one of his tutors, and really the first um, eight years or so of his, of his reign as emperor were very good for the church. He didn't go crazy until the last part, and, and that's when he started um, you know, throwing Christians to the lions and hanging them from poles and igniting them with paraffin and doing totally bizarre things. But in the first part of his reign, he was actually pretty good and so this is a period of time in that early part where the the frank opposition to christianity has somewhat died down in rome and the christians are beginning to experience a little more freedom and the the jewish community and the gentile community are kind of coming back together and some of the questions that are in their minds you know are how do we live in this kind of a government how do we live in this culture? How do we act? And Paul gives us chapter 13 as spirit-filled behavior in government as citizens in the world. And one of the things that we need to recognize when we come to this chapter, and I really am just going to do the overview this morning, I, I mean, I want us to get the bird's eye view so that we get the whole in our mind we need to realize that this chapter was not written to Christians in the United States of America only. It was written to Christians in Hitler's Germany. It was written to Christians in Mao Zedong's China. It was written to Christians who live in North Korea. It was written to Christians who live in Africa and in strange totalitarian regimes there. It's written to Christians who live in South America, Colombia, and places where there's all kinds of problems. This chapter is the Word of God that is for believers of all time in all places under all kinds of government. It is God's Word to us that is relevant and transcendent of any form of government, of any time in the life of the church, of any kind of regime, it is the message of God to our hearts. For all believers of all ages. And Paul says in this chapter, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist, are established by God. You say, how does that happen? Explain that to me. You mean Hitler? What's it say? Idi Amin? What's it say? Alright, how do you reconcile that? Let me take you back in time. I want to take you to a time when the world had gotten so bad that there was no hope for it. And God said, if I don't start over, these people, they're going to be so evil and so wicked that they're going to implode upon themselves and, and totally destroy the race. The only salvation here is to find the one guy on the planet that even has an inkling toward me And uh, have him build a boat and take his family onto it. And I'm going to wipe out the rest of this human race and start over or we're going to lose the whole game. And so God called Noah out. Noah built a boat. And he brought his family, three sons, their wives, his wife. And you know the story. And God sent the floods and destroyed every other human being and every other living thing on the earth. And then after the flood, as they're coming out, God comes up with a new plan. Now, it wasn't that God just had this thought for the first time, but it's the first time he gave it to men. And what he basically said was, he said, there, you need to govern yourselves. So I'm going to give you authority. And I'm even going to give you authority to go so far as to take the life of another human being Who murders or destroys other life? I am going, uh, another human life. I'm going to give you the authority of judgment and capital punishment. I am going to give you government as a restraint to preserve your life. And since that time, every government that has existed has existed under the authority and by The delegation and mandate of God Himself. Now, that's an amazing thing. Because there have been some pretty horrific governments. There have been (laughs) some pretty terrible kinds of dictators. There have been some horrible times in history where people have massacred the church. Where they've been cruel to other human beings apart from the church. Horrible times. And yet the Apostle Paul says, every government authority exists by and under the authority of God. And here's the message. This is what we need to take out of here. God is saying to us that the worst government on the planet is better than no government at all. Because if there is no government, then the consequence is there is anarchy in the streets. Murder, mayhem, madness, thieving, raping, stealing, murdering, killing off one another, breaking into houses, marauding bands, everybody doing whatever they want to do without restraint, no one to stop them. Who wants to live like that? I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be forced every day of my life uh, to go around in my own gang to protect me from other gangs so there's strength in numbers. I don't want to go around uh, armed because I'm afraid to show my face in the light of day and, and even more afraid at night. I don't want to live in anarchy with no government at all because the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, and if left alone, the Scripture says, will bring us into a state of evil and wickedness that as God said of the earth in the time of Noah, their thoughts are evil continuously. They never think anything good. They're always out for destruction, out for themselves. Greed and, and vice and And all of that drives them day and night in the lust of their flesh. They have no other goals and there's no hope for them. And so even if you are a Christian today in North Korea or if you're a Christian today in a Muslim country that threatens your life, you are still better off than in a place where there is no rule of law whatsoever. God has given us human government for our protection and for our blessing. And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I urge you to pray for kings and rulers and people who are in authority, magistrates, governors, I urge you to pray for them, that we might live and lead a quiet and peaceful life. In order that we might be free to share the message of Jesus Christ and other people might come to know him as Lord and Savior. And in that passage, there is this principle that is very significant for us to hang on to. I'm reminded us of this before we shared the communion table together. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And friends, no matter what happens on this planet, if we are blessed with incredibly good health, and we just have those genetics that that make the motor run like the ever-ready battery, you know, and we live to be 110, we're still going to die. We're all still going to die. And after that moment comes the judgment. And then there's going to be eternity. Eternity. And it's going to be lived in one of two places. In the presence of God, with all the saints, together with all of our loved ones who know Jesus, and with the Lord Jesus, we're going to live there forever Forever. Forever. I mean, our our 50, 70, 90, 100 years on this planet is going to be like the blink of your eye in a billion years. It's going to go on forever. Or, we're going to live separated from God, in a place of conscious and eternal torment called hell. And there is nothing more important than making a decision now for one of those two places. There's nothing that happens in the economy that is more important than that question. There is nothing that happens in Congress that is more important than that question. There is nothing that happens in foreign affairs that is more important than that question. There is nothing that happens to your retirement account that is more important than that question. There is nothing that happens in the court systems of McHenry County that is more important than that question. There's nothing that happens on this earth that is more important than that question. It is the supreme question. And the church has the answer, and we transcend human government. We live above it. In a kingdom called the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this earth. And when we are called to be His, we are called out of this world system To be in a kingdom that is not of this earth. And we have a message to share that is the message of eternal life. And I don't care who wins the election, I don't care who invades whom, I don't care what gets blown up, I don't care what country falls and what country rises. There's nothing more important than being the church wherever we are with the message of Jesus Christ. And recognizing that to one extent or another, the rule of law, however justly or unjustly administered, is actually a preservative that to a greater or lesser, but to some extent, affords us the privilege of sucking in another breath and being able to tell somebody else about Jesus Christ. And gives them the privilege of sucking in another breath and perhaps receiving Him as Lord and Savior. And therefore, all government that restrains The violent, wicked hearts of men and women is a blessing, however ungodly it might even be. And so Paul says, if you resist authority, you're resisting the ordinance of God. Now, there are many things about what I've just said that do not negate certain other things. We are not called to give blind obedience to government rulers. Do you remember in the book of Acts, when the apostles, the disciples, were called in front of the magistrates, the Pharisees, and said, you have got to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Now, those rulers actually had authority under Rome, because Rome had allowed the, the leadership of certain subject nationalities, had allowed them the privilege of governing themselves within certain limitations. Still had to pay taxes to Rome. Rome still had the authority of capital punishment. But certain subject national groups were allowed to rule themselves within certain parameters. The Jews were one of those groups of people. And the Pharisees had legitimate Roman authority to govern their affairs, and they called these guys in, whom they considered troublemakers, and they said, you can no longer speak in the name of Jesus. They were rightful authorities. They were like police officers under Rome. This is messing up our city. It's causing trouble. We want you to stop. Don't open your mouth again in the name of Jesus. And what did they say? We must obey God rather than men. We cannot obey what you're telling us. We must speak the message of Jesus Christ. And why was that so? Because Jesus had said to them as He was leaving, I'm going to send My Spirit upon you. And when He comes, you will be My witnesses and you will bring this message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world, I want you to get the message out because nothing is more important than telling people about Jesus. And so when they were ordered to stop, they said, we cannot stop. You can kill us. You can put us in jail. You can burn us at the stake. You can throw us to the lions. But we cannot stop. We'll talk to people on the streets. We'll talk to the jailers in the jail. We'll talk to the executioner. We'll testify before Caesar. We'll give the message from the arena in Rome when they let the lions loose. But we will not stop talking about Jesus. We won't punch you in the face when you come to arrest us. We won't gather up machine guns and and build bunkers and, and form platoons to fire against you. We won't resist you violently. We will go with you quietly. Oh, but we're going to talk about Jesus. We will obey God. We must obey God. The message of the passage is, that we have a responsibility to the law of God. Insofar as we can, we are under the civil authorities, but when there is a disagreement, a conflict between civil law and God's law that is clearly God's law, we have a moral duty under God to obey God and to quietly, graciously, humbly, Accept whatever punishment the governmental authorities meet out without rebellion. Ouch. That's the real kicker, isn't it? So if you lived in Nazi Germany, do you hide Jews or not? Yes, you do. You know, and you don't run out in the street and say, hey Nazis, we're hiding Jews here. Just wanted to be in submission. Let everybody know that. No, you do your best to hide them. You do your best to to, to save them. And you run the risk of having the Gestapo knock on the door. And find out what you're doing. And arrest you. And take you to the death camp. And then you go. Because you've done all you can do. Without being openly rebellious. You've done all you can do. Nor does civil obedience mean that we cannot exercise all of our rights under the law. You remember the Apostle Paul when he was arrested in Jerusalem and the plot was out to get him and and pretty soon he knew that if things went the way they were going, he was not going to get a fair trial. He was probably going to get murdered by the Jews. Things were not going well and he couldn't get a fair hearing from the local Roman authorities because they were more worried about their political brownie points than they were about doing what was right in the case. And do you know what Paul did? He didn't say, okay, whatever you guys say is fine with me. He says, hey, you know what? Hold the phone. I am a Roman citizen. And I have rights as a Roman citizen. And you can't do this to me. I appeal to Caesar." Now, appealing to Caesar was, in effect, calling, uh, invoking a citizen's right to change a venue. I can't get a fair trial in Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar. And taking it to the highest court in the land, because you said, this guy's politically motivated, I need somebody at a higher level that is not going to be concerned about what's going on in Jerusalem, but whether or not the right thing is happening. I appeal to Caesar. So you have every right as a citizen to exercise your rights under the law in whatever country you live. We have all kinds of rights. Furthermore, in addition to our legal rights, we have privileges as citizens that are privileges that we should be free to exercise. We have the privilege of voting. We have the privilege of speaking our mind about uh, who we believe will be the best candidate. I don't have that privilege up here anymore. Um, The IRS has taken that away. But, and I'll respect that. But uh, I can put signs in my yard, and I can talk to you at McDonald's if I want to. I don't want to, but if I did, I could. I have the, the privilege as a citizen of influencing. I have the privilege of running for office if, if I just have come to the point I can't stand it anymore. You know, listen, let me have a chance. We have that opportunity And that is an opportunity that, as Christian citizens, salting and lighting the government in which we live as a privilege. If you live in a totalitarian regime, you don't have that privilege, but we do. And it's a privilege that we should be free to exercise, and that we ought to exercise, because if we don't, we may not have it any longer. But we still need to bear in mind that we are citizens first of a heavenly kingdom that transcends this government. And you know what? I don't care who we elect. They are not going to solve our problems. Oh, it might get better for a few years. Okay? But read your Bible. After Romans comes some other epistles, a bunch of them actually. And then there's a book called Revelation. And Revelation says... It all goes to hell in the handbasket before Jesus comes. And, and, And I mean that. I mean, literally, that's what happens. The whole world ends up under the Antichrist before Jesus shows up and brings deliverance. It's not ultimately going to get better. It's ultimately going to get worse until Jesus comes. We need to have enlightened understanding about that it's appropriate to do all we can within the time frame that we have to influence, to pray for that peace, to evangelize, to propagate the gospel, to pray for a, a, an environment, a culture, an opportunity when we can freely proclaim Jesus Christ, to elect the candidates that, that are coming from our conscience and our conviction as being the, the best we can get. But it's not anyone. It's not going to fix it. In the end, in the end, all the nations turn from God. There's not one that's a nation under God. Poor Jerusalem, they're not even a nation under God. It's just that God made a promise to Abraham He's not going to break. They don't even know what they're doing. And then Jesus is going to come back. And He is going to be the only King, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that can fix this mess. So we need to have that in mind. I remember a few years ago sitting down with Don Manzullo, and he met with some of the pastors in the area and asked us to to meet with him for breakfast or lunch or something. I don't remember what. I know we were somewhere at a restaurant, I think, and we were chatting, and, and he says, Listen, I want to tell you something. And I believe the man is a genuine brother in Jesus Christ. And here's what he said. He said, I pray about what I'm doing in Washington. He said, I want to do the right thing. But he says, I want you pastors to understand, I never have a choice between a God-honoring, biblically-based, morally right bill and an ungodly bad bill. He said, the only choice I ever have is between picking a bad bill or a worse one. He said, they're all polluted. There's no such thing as a purely, because people tax stuff on. You give me that, I'll give you this. Okay, we'll trade this for that. You, you want a bridge, I'll give you a bridge if you'll give me three hotels. You know, they play Monopoly. They, they tack this stuff on, and uh, you, you want these rights? Okay, then I get this money to do this with. There is no way in the current state of affairs in this country... to, To have a razor's edge between black and white and say, oh, this is the righteous one and this is the ungodly one. Typically what you're looking at is this good stuff has all kinds of ungodly mess attached to it. This really bad stuff has some good things in it. God, give me wisdom. Do I pick bad or worse? Give me wisdom. The next thing that Paul brings out here is that those who enforce the law are servants of God and deserve respect. You read that in verses 3, 4, and 5. You can read it later. But in verses 3, 4, and 5, those who enforce the law deserve respect. The highest executive officer in the country is the President of the United States. The lowest executive officer in the country is the new recruit, in-training, patrol officer on the local police department. Every one of those executive officers deserves respect. Not because they're all respectable. Can I make that clear? They're not all respectable. Some of them are total jerks. Some of them wanted to become police officers because they're on a power trip. Some of them wanted to carry a gun, and they didn't want to go to jail for it, so they joined the police force so they could carry a gun legally. They just, they just like going around with a gun on their hip. You know? And I'm not picking on police officers here. There's another group of people that are power-hungry a- a- as a class. They attract people that, that want to have power and want to be in charge and control of things. And that's pastors. so I'm not picking on police officers. But the office deserves respect because it is God's minister to you. If they weren't there at all, I mean, think about this for a moment. You may not like what every police officer in McHenry does, and and, and you may have even been mistreated by some at one time or another. And a deputy sheriff show up at our house one night over something that was happening here in the church parking lot. And he abused my wife in our house, not physically, but verbally. He abused her. Talking about those lousy, dirty, rotten people at that church and that lousy pastor and all of that because we let stuff go on here. It's like Friday night. I didn't even know what was going on down here. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's immaterial. Think for a moment. If for the next two weeks, every police officer in McHenry County at all levels left the area and there was no one to call and no one enforcing the law, how long do you think it would take to totally trash the county and then your house? I give it about six hours to totally trash every retail establishment in the county and just a few days before they're breaking down your front door. Okay, so you may not like them individually. Some of them may be rascals. But the function they provide deserves respect. And the office deserves respect doesn't mean that they can get away with breaking the law themselves. But the office deserves respect. And Paul says, taxation is a way of supporting that institution, and it's just and proper to pay it. Listen, they had abortion in Rome. They had child sacrifice in Rome. They celebrated homosexuality in Rome. They had all kinds of ungodly stuff going on and on. Who do you think paid for the arenas that and, and housed the lions that ate the Christians? Who do you think paid for that? Taxpayers. There's always bad uses of money. But Paul says it's right and just to pay taxes because it supports a system that however ungodly it may be, is still better than nothing. Hands down, in a heartbeat, it's better than nothing. And those who bear the sword, the symbol of authority, do so as ministers of God and deserve respect. That's, this is the Spirit-filled Christian out there in the world. I said this at 8 o'clock, I'll say it to you. One of the most incongruous things to me is, is to, to see a Christian with, with a radar detector. If you have one, shame on you. What good is it? It's an open defiance of law. You know, it's, and and, uh, back in the day, you know, when I was working with the sheriff's department in another state, it was a given. You have a radar detector, you get a ticket. We don't even talk warning. You just get a ticket. Because we know that you habitually break the law every chance you get So you just get a ticket because you got caught this time and I don't care what it is and you get a ticket for everything we can think of because there's a symbol of open defiance on your dashboard. Come on. There's nothing more incongruous than that. Believers do strange things. Honoring the law means the spirit of the law. It means respecting the law of the land no matter what. And you know what? If you get pulled over, and you're speeding, be nice, be polite, be respectful, accept whatever comes, don't give up your rights, don't roll over and play dead, but show respect. And as reasonably as possible, accept what you get, because guess what? You deserve it. Recognize that. Finally, and some people feel that this doesn't belong in the first part of the chapter, but it really does, because this last section is our conduct in the world. In verses 8 through 21, he says, Oh, no, nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbors fulfilled the law. Can I just say real quickly here, this is not talking about financial debt. Okay, There's not one verse of Scripture that says it is sinful to borrow or lend money, not one. And if you have a mortgage and you think this is talking about financial debt, you're sinning because a mortgage is a debt. It just is. Uh, You can call it an investment, but how many of you made money on your house this year? I see your hands. Everyone whose house appreciated in 2008. Okay, it's a debt. Debt is debt is debt, but this is not talking about money you owe to other people. It may not be smart, and there's plenty in the Bible about wisdom in the management of your money. But this verse is talking about owing respect, owing honor, as citizens, owing taxes. And Nelly says, O oh, love. The one thing that you should always give is love. You have a debt of love that will never go away. And if you practice love... Love by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will always keep the law of God. It's not like love is additional to the law of God. It's the law of love is the law of God. And if you love your neighbor the way you love yourself, you will always be in compliance with God's higher authority. He gives this illustration. And finally, he says in verse 11 through through 21... Know this, at the time, it's already the hour for you to awake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and drunkenness, not sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not strife and jealousy. In Rome, it was common practice. They partied hardy. Man, they had big parties. They had festivals. They had summertime, July beer fest in the middle of town. Okay, and they got drunk. That never happens in our town. But they did that in Rome. They drank like fish. They had orgies. They had thousands of temple prostitutes. You could stop by on the way home from work and worship at the temple. It was prevalent. Homosexuality was prevalent. Carousing, the word carousing literally means to have a festival. It means the kind of rowdiness that happens when everybody gets together and starts drinking and partying and pretty soon they lose their inhibitions and and then they get crazy. When we lived over here, we woke up one night to the screams of some woman saying, he's got a knife, he's got a knife. And there was brawling in the streets and, and the police were coming in and, you know, what happened? They were having a cookout. And then they started drinking. And then they got nuts. And they partied. And then they got jealous. And then the, the orgy stuff started. And then somebody pulled a knife. That's the flow of events. And in Rome, this was common practice among the people of the, of the society. The carousing, the drinking, the immorality was common. And Paul says as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, you need to walk to a different drummer. Don't participate in these. Jesus is closer today than he was yesterday. He's coming. We have a mission to bring glory to Jesus Christ by honoring and respecting government, by honoring those who bear the sword, by paying our taxes, and by living lives above the common, ordinary existence of the average person in a way that calls attention to Jesus Christ. That's our duty in society. That is the Spirit-filled life as we live in the world. We ought to call attention to Jesus Christ by the respectful, gracious, and godly way that we live our lives. Do you do that? That's the Spirit-filled life in society. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. Minister to us through it. Help us to be a people that recognizes the value And wherever we are, honors and respects authority, humbly and graciously lives out the life and the power of the Holy Spirit, even when we are required to resist ungodly orders and commands, that we will do so with poise and courage, In a spirit of humility, knowing that what's really important, what's really important is whether or not that person in front of us, beside us, behind us, is going to come with us to heaven and spend eternity with Jesus. It may be an ornery, out-of-sorts, abusive police officer It may be a wicked ruler. It may be some government policy that we can no longer abide. But give us courage and grace and poise to bring the message of Jesus Christ. And never to bring reproach on his name by our behavior. If they persecute us. Let it be because we love Jesus and we make no bones about it. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.